Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. In this episode, we're talking about SST31, Husker Du, New Day Rising. And for me, this is a big one. We just finished talking about Zen Arcade, and uh, New Day Rising for me is kind of the first LP by Husker Du that really meant something to me anyways. And it's, it's right up there with Flip Your Wig for me. Uh, looking forward to getting into that one. But before we start talking about New Day Rising, Brant, is there anything uh, you want to lay on the people? Any spiels? Actually, there is. We got some messages from listeners, which is always nice. We love, we love getting feedback, so keep it coming. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud. We get a lot of messages on SoundCloud, which is cool. So we got a message from Devin Booth on our Facebook page asking us if we've heard of this Dirty Projectors album, Rise Above. Have you heard of this, Ryan? No, what's that about? Well, I've, I know the Dirty Projectors. I've seen them play a few times, but I don't know about this. So actually, Michael T. Fournier chimed in on the post and said that the album is the Dirty Projectors allegedly recreating the damaged album from memory. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. If it's live or, or, or if they just went into a, a studio without rehearsing it or, or what it is. But we don't have to track it down and check it out. They linked uh, a YouTube. I, I didn't check it out. This was just today. I haven't checked it out yet. Maybe it's like the full album or something. Oh, I'm definitely going to check that out. What are the Dirty Projectors like? Is that kind of like a modern punk band or something? Yeah, kind of. I don't know too much about them, to be honest with you. They've played at the club that I book at, so... Are they from the U.S.? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Lots of cool recommend. Always always happy to receive some of those. Yeah. And speaking of Michael, he also gave us a, a hot tip. He was checking out our... I don't remember which episode it was where... I think it was uh, 8 Miles High where we were talking about uh, those bands on Discord, like the Evens and Medications. Oh, yeah, and Farrakhet. Yep. yep. He says Devin Ocampo is the dude, and he also played in Smart Went Crazy. Well, I've, I've read about them. Yeah. I don't, smart, it's, smart, it's Smart Went Crazy, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And also from Michael, a little correction. I think you had mentioned something about getting stuff from Discord and getting a, a message from Amy. Yep, way you, back. Yeah, who you had assumed was... Uh, Amy Farina from the Warmers and the Evens, but yeah. he says that would have been Amy Pickering, who was in a yes. band, who was in a band called Fire Party. Fire Party, that's Amy Pickering. You're right. That's absolutely right. Yeah, no, that's a good correction. Too many Amys at the Discord house, but that's right. That, those are my spiels. I only have one actually, and I mean, it's no, no one mentioned it or anything. I just wanted to mention because it actually relates to the Eight Miles High episode. And we're talking about Husker Du in this episode. I think we were talking about Bob Mould's touring band in the Eight Miles High episode. You know, the uh, the drummer from Superchunk is in that band. And I actually picked up the new Superchunk record. Have you heard that one? It's called What a Time to Be Alive. Haven't heard it. So it's new on Merge. And it's their first record since 2013. And, you know... I really love this, the early Super Chunk records. There were a couple of 
records, I guess, in the middle of Super Chunk's days that were a little sleepy to me, like here's where the strings come in. But what a time to be alive is like, what a great record. It is so good. I mean, it's obviously got a bit of a political bent to it in a lot of the lyrics, but wow, it's a really good record. Like Super Chunk can still crank them out. Super solid. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I It's one of those ones where I listened to it all the way through and was like, man, it's over already. And I had to flip it over and listen to it again. Right on. Very cool. Um, do you want to talk about New Day Rising? Hell yeah. All right. History lesson, part one. So, New Day Rising is the first full length right after Zen Arcade. And it was, it came out very quickly, relatively speaking, as, as certainly by today's standards, after Zen Arcade came out. And we mentioned, I think, during the Zen Arcade episode about how there was a big delay in releasing Zen Arcade in order for it to come out at the same time as Double Nickels on the Dime. And by the time Husker Du was touring for Zen Arcade, they were already playing songs off of this record, New Day Rising. Yeah, six months after... Zen Arcade is when this came out, January of 85. And uh, I read a quote somewhere, I think it was in uh, the book by Andrew Earls, Bruce right. Gerdoux, the, the story of the noise pop pioneers who launched modern rock. It mentions how Joe Carducci, like, you know, really quickly after Zen Arcade was either recorded or released, he's like, get me another record right now. So they went to Minneapolis to record this one with Spot. And a local Minneapolis producer engineer, Steve Felstead, who also worked with another one of my favorites, The Replacements. He's done some great records. He did uh, he did Rifle Sport. He did uh, Stink, Sorry Ma, Let It Be. He did a Seven Seconds album that I really like, an EP called Praise. What era of Seven Seconds is that? That's way later. It's when they yeah yeah. It's when they kind of sounded like U two. Yeah okay, because I'm like. That's got to be even after their BYO days and New Wind and stuff. Oh, way later. Way later. Yeah. I bought like a late 7 Seconds record as kind of the first 7 Seconds record I ever bought out on the shizzy. And then I went backwards and got into their hardcore stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was recorded at a studio called Nicolette Studios, which was kind of an old vaudeville theater. And this record, it kind of represents... A bunch of cracks is how I've been thinking about it when I was reading about it over the week. The cracks begin to show between the band and Spot as an engineer, producer, the band and SST, and also between Bob and Grant as well. Like All those things are kind of starting with this record. Yeah. Well, they're done with Spot after this. This will be the last one of the last spot albums for SST like ever. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. It, it is. If, if it's not the last, it's definitely one of the last. Well, he does DC three, which is next. So this record is, it's a very, very well-known critically acclaimed record for the songwriting. It's also very well known for, I guess the production values on it. Right. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, it's one of the ones that I think of, when people kind of are harsh on spots production and engineering but and i mean even when you read the andrew earl's book 
there's a, a ton of quotes in there, especially from Grant Hart. I, I don't think Bob Mould participated in that book, but from Gra Grant Hart anyways, talking about how he just thinks that uh, the sound quality is terrible on it. For me, New Day Rising, it doesn't sound great, but I've said this before, it sounds exactly like it should to me. It still sounds right. It doesn't sound great, but it still sounds right. It's kind of the uh, injustice for all of indie rock. <laughs> <laughs> there's just, there's no low end. Yeah, no doubt. It, it's just, the, the vocals are buried in most of the songs. There's just a big cymbal wash over everything. And the guitar has got that shimmering tone uh, it's not there's like no it's not that there's no bass there's no mids even it's all treble yeah and um i mean one of the one of the reasons that are cited for why it kind of sounds bad is husker du i you know some of the quotes i was reading suggested that they really wanted to produce this themselves but the label sent spot to kind of oversee it and there was a lot of tension there and a foreign studio as well and everything was recorded really hot and no bottom end so it has a very distinctive sound yeah the the insinuation is that spot was sent out to kind of make sure they didn't spend you know too much time doing overdubs and you know writing material in the studio and and uh, i don't know if that's true or not but yeah wasting money right yeah I don't know if that's because they were coming off of Zen Arcade, which, but even Zen Arcade was recorded in like 48 hours, right? Yeah, again, though, it seems like Bob was on board with doing it as cheaply as possible still at this time. Yeah, he also describes in, in his book, he describes this record as like his drinking record. He was pretty much drunk the whole time. Yeah. You can even hear it in some of the vocals. He's just mumbling completely plastered yeah yeah but it definitely you read in more than one place about how there was a very tense atmosphere and a lot of alcohol and it resulted in kind of an album that is as notorious for the the very important songs on it as it is for the sound quality the sonic quality of the album and it's no better or different on, uh, I have it on vinyl and CD, and it sounds the same on both. And again, I'm pretty forgiving of the sound quality. It, it sounds it sounds like it should to me. Yeah. Bob tells a story in his book about uh, Spot showing up and demanding that they move the soundboard three inches. He describes it as a power move to establish dominance. Yep. So... That's where that relationship was at. This is off topic, did, but did you uh, see Spot was on the Watt from Pedro show a while back? No. Did you listen to it? I did, yeah. it's You'd probably like it. There's some uh, some stuff of him jamming with the Minutemen back in the day. I mean, they don't talk about too much SST stuff, but I mean, anytime I listen to Watt's show, I usually hear something that that interests me that I'm unaware of. For starters. Oh, yeah. Spot does mention something about media art. He says, because uh, they're talking about his his fo uh, photography. 
because he's got a new book coming out or something. Does he have a second book coming out? I believe so, yeah. Oh, really? Cool. And he mentions that he kind of got into it at the same time as he started working at Media Art because they had like a photography studio inside Media Art with dark rooms and stuff. That, that's why it was called Media Art because they were trying to do like mixed media. Oh, no kidding. Well, that was uh, way ahead of its time. You kind of mentioned, Ryan, that also uh, Grant and Bob's relationship was really starting to fracture at this point. Yep. So Bob puts it in his book down to this track 2541, which is uh, the address of Nicolette Studio, by the way. And uh, that studio where they recorded this, Twin Tones offices were in there. Reflex and Husker Du's offices were in there. Uh, it had been a recording studio since like the 60s or something like that. That song Surfin' Bird by the Trashmen was recorded there. And apparently it was a real hotbed of like garage rock in the 60s. And eventually, yep. uh, way later, Amphetamine Reptile moved their offices in there. But Grant had this track 2541, which he's released later on on SST. Yeah, it's like a 12-inch, right? Yeah. So Bob says he wanted to cut it because it has the same riff as a Dream Syndicate song. And he says that he, th he thinks this broke the truce and ignited a passive-aggressive conflict between the two of them. So I listened to that. I went ahead and listened to 2541, and it does kind of sound like this Dream Syndicate song called Tell Me When It's Over. Not a lot. It's like a sped up, like the the opening riff. It's kind of maybe a sped up version of that, but I, I wouldn't say it's like a glaring ripoff or anything. And I mean, it's not a bad song either. I'm not sure it would have fit on this album, but it's hard to say because the recording... On, that Grant does of it way later is, you know, way more produced than this, than it would have yeah. been if it would have been recorded during this session. Well, I don't know what you think, but I mean, when I listen to this record, there are, I mean, it's not a 50-50 Bob and Grant split. There are more Bob songs, just a bit more. But for me, this is a Bob album. Oh, yeah. Like the Bob songs are insanely good they are foundational this is this is the album for me where bob kind of established his sound there are a couple of tracks on here that he mentions in his book like by the time they are you know on a major label and touring their their last record they would hit like the opening chords of some of these songs and the crowd would go just berserk you know because some of the some of this stuff on this record is incredibly important and influential. Yeah, he says in his book, I think that he still plays "I Apologize" and "Celebrated Summer" almost every show. Every show, yep. yeah. I mean, I still I still remember seeing him play those songs, like when I saw him a few years back, because they're very powerful on record, but live, it's just insane. Yeah. And just think about the song. I apologize, for example, or celebrated summer. I mean, we'll get into it a bit in when we're going through the tracks, but we've we've spoken about Husker Du leaving hardcore behind. A couple of the tracks on this record near the end are pretty hardcore sounding, but you can't imagine, you know, like your your stereotypical early '80s hardcore band singing a song called "I Apologize" unless it was 
ironic or something, right? That's not what that's not where Bob is coming from here. Yeah. Now, this is I mentioned that this is a really important record. It it received a lot of critical acclaim when it came out and even subsequent. It is ranked 13th in Spins 100 greatest albums of 1985 to 2005. It was in Spin in 2014. It was named the 51st in uh, the best albums in the past 30 years. It was upgraded subsequently in Rolling Stone's best 500 albums of all time to number 488. Now, you might think 488 is pretty low down on the list, but keep in mind that they've got stuff like Alanis Morissette on that list too, right? Hey, uh, hey Ryan, um, have you ever seen that there's a website called uh, the RS 500.com, I think it's called. Yeah, that's the one. No, no, this is a different thing. Well, what's that? It's, uh, so a bunch of writers, including Michael T. Fournier, they kind of use, like, they use the greatest album, uh, list as a backdrop for creative writing. Okay. And they, they do, like, like Michael does, like, uh, Wild Gift, I think, is one of the ones he does. The X album? Yeah, and uh, Pavement, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, and I think he does Fun House. He doesn't do this one, but uh, like this, there's a story that goes along with this one about some some girl named Mary who lives up upstairs above this band, and she goes downstairs because they're pl- always playing their music too loud and tells them to turn it down, and this guy with a goofy-looking handlebar mustache answers the door and like gives her some lip. <laughs> Guess who that was? Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool idea, anyways. So is it Rolling Stones five hundred top five hundred albums, and then just other people then who reviewed those albums go ahead and write their own thing about each release? It's completely separate from Rolling Stone. It has nothing to do with Rolling Stone magazine. But it's called RS five hundred. Yeah, I think it's called vrs five hundred dot com. Huh. That must be named that in order to get some hits. Yeah. Maybe it's thers.500.com. Okay. Well, yeah. um, I'm, uh, I'm interested to get into the release itself here, but I was, I was kind of going through a bit of a list of where this album ranks on, you know, Spin and Rolling Stones. Rolling Stone lists New Day Rising as uh, number 96 of the hundred greatest guitar songs of all time. But, you know, this was a really important record for the band. It's still really important today. And Zen Arcade started getting the labels talking and Husker Du, when they put out New Day Rising, um, I think it's really when they started getting a lot of major label interest. And by the time they went to record Flip Your Wig, it's pretty shocking that they were even still on SST with the amount of attention they were getting on that. Do you remember podcast about who's the history of Husker do? I remember Terry Katzman saying like already by the time Zen Arcade came out, they were starting to think about a label change, mostly because of lack of distribution and stuff going out of print. And I mean, by this point, you know, A&R guys are for sure starting to show up to their, uh, you know, to their, to their shows. Yeah. Offering to buy them lunch. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, 
you know, a lot of some of the most famous or well-known punk bands of all time. I was thinking about this when I was reading up about this release and the major label interest. I mean, I don't know if it is such a controversial subject anymore, but in the late 80s and 90s, when I kind of came up in the punk scene, going on a major label and selling out was like such a big deal. But, you know, the Stooges, MC5, Ramones, Sex Pistols, all on a major label. The indie scene starts up in the 80s and then there and then definitely like into the 90s. It was a badge of honor almost to turn down major labels. But I don't think Husker Du really even thought a lot about that. It was all about the frustration of not getting sufficient distribution for the records. They show up in town and it'd be like, no one can find your record. They were definitely worried about losing creative control, I think, on a major. I was reading up on that too, right? Because that is one of the things, like, not only do you lose all your street cred, but then you lose all your creative control. But based on what I read, when they jumped to Warner Brothers, they cut one of, I, I, I mean, it's heralded as one of the foundational type of indie contracts where you can maintain your uh, creative control. Grant Hart, when uh, when reading up on this, he doesn't seem to really put that much stock in it, but they definitely did maintain their control when they went to the major label. Yeah, I mean, and there's not many, not many bands that I mean, no one would would necessarily admit like, yeah, I lost all my creative control when I signed to a major label. I did it just for the money or anything like that. Husker Du clearly did it for better distribution. And yeah. they did maintain their creative control. Well, the, the smarter bands don't even take the advance, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I mean, as far as street cred goes, they weren't even really a part of the hardcore scene anymore. Like they were, by this point, they were uh, like kind of the, you know, the indie rock band, if that term even existed at that point. Well, I know when I listen to this record, I go, man, there are so many bands that put out stuff after this record that were so influenced by this sound, by this Bob record. Yeah. It's just insane. Like there were a lot of bands around this era and even before that started off like the indie scene or whatever, but this is so foundational, this record. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Well, let's do that. History lesson part two. Okay. So we, we kind of talked a little bit about the recording of this record. I kind of stole an idea from you when I was working on this record this week, you know, really diving deep into it. And you have in the past written down what kind of comes to your mind when you listen to the songs. And I kind of did yep. this. I kind of did the same thing. So many things were going through my mind. I don't, I didn't write down all of it, but just the first thing that came to my mind. And so I thought, that might be a good way to go through the list. Sure, let's do that. We mentioned New Day Rising as, you know, one of Rolling Stone's greatest guitar songs of all time. It's a pretty relentless pummeling of, you know, one lyric, one chord, a bit of uh, change-ups in drum pattern, a bit of a change-up in dynamic, but it's pretty much the same thing from start to finish. But the thing that came to my mind when I listened to this song was joy and rage, like just the combination of both. 
it is a really good set opener. Yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure they open many sets with that song. Yeah, for sure. And it's also kind of semi-famous for Robert <laughs> addicted to love Palmer using it as an encore song, which is <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah, I've never I read about that too. I did not track it down on YouTube if it exists. I don't know. Oh, I'm sure it does. Yeah. Next song is The Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill, a Grant song. And the thing that came to my mind, other than how just how excellent Bob and Grant's vocals are and Bob's little licks on the guitar through that song, is yeah. uh, for me, as a bass player, I love Greg Norton's bass playing on this song. Yeah, Grant's really hard on this song. like His vocals. You know, yeah, really disappointed with the vocals, but... I don't know. I don't mind it. I guess I'm. This is how I'm used to hearing it. So yeah. And then uh, another pretty famous Bob song. I apologize. We spoke about that already. Kind of the opposite of hardcore. It's probably one of my favorite Husker Du songs of all time. Yeah. It's not my favorite on this record, but it's one of mine of all time for sure. And then Bob has a very pop song next, Folklore. What I wrote down was, yeah, just like a, a very, a very pop song, especially for Bob by this stage. And then uh, the next song, if I told you, a Grant song, another pop song, really catchy song too. Yep. The uh, the Grant songs in this record really struck me as being a little bit more overtly influenced by the '60s or the Paisley Underground type sound more so than the Bob songs. Yeah. And then the next song, Celebrated Summer by Bob, I wrote next to this one, The Best. Yeah, it's a good song. I've never understood why people like it as much as they do, if I'm being honest. <laughs> it's it's probably not even in my top ten Husker Du songs. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, um, there's, a, there's a song, I call this one The Best. The opening lick is the best, and I think the song is the best, but there's actually still a song I like better on this record, and it's coming up. Perfect Example is a bizarre song. There's no bass on it that I can tell, and this is the one that Bob describes as he just kind of mumbled the lyrics because he was too drunk, Yeah, and it made it onto the record. <laughs> to me, that's a throwaway song. Yeah, it is. Um, well... It's not as much of a throwaway song as another one coming up in my mind. Um, yeah. But then you flip flip the uh, the LP, and the next song is Terms of Psychic Warfare, Grant's song. This one, to me, again, just sounds like the 60s. That's what I have written down. Yeah. And then 59 Times the Pain is probably my favorite song on this record. Oh, yeah? For sure. I'll, when... Uh, it starts off with kind of drunken Bob mumbling, but the chorus gets me every time. It's it's uh, it's pretty powerful. It's one of those ones that makes the hair stand up on my arms every time almost. You notice I'm not adding much to what you're saying. I'm going to be really honest. This is my least favorite Husker Du album of the SST era, for sure. Really? Yeah. Even really? Wow. I love the first three songs on it, and for me, it just goes downhill after that. Oh, I can't, I can't agree with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like it better than Zen Arcade. You like Zen Arcade better? Oh, 
Oh, a million times better. A million times better. A million times better. I would pick Zenarcade every time. Over New Day Rising. Yep. Oh my God. I don't think we can be friends anymore. <laughs> and I would flip, pick Flip Your Wig over any of them. Well, look, I'm not saying that I like New Day Rising better than Flip Your Wig, but I am saying that New Day Rising is not the worst Husker Du SST record. And that's yeah. a done deal. <laughs> well, I again, I'm probably going to get ripped apart online for my opinion. It's it's a time and place thing often for me. Yeah. And this is just not an album I've spent as much time with as the other yeah. SST stuff. Yeah, that's fair. I've spent a ton more time with this one than Zen Arcade, for sure. Yeah, I don't know. For me, all aside to it, this is a throwaway. Whoa. <laughs> but, but I mean... Uh, Having said all that, like I said, I apologize. I apologize might be my favorite Husker Du song. Like I love that track. So uh, I don't know what to believe anymore. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> all right. Speaking of throw, speaking of throwaways, Powerline is next. Yes. Um, so that's a Bob song, not the greatest song, but I do love Greg Norton's bass playing on it. He's playing lots of chords on it, and I like that. That's what I wrote down there. Grant has the next song books about ufos what do you think of that one it's okay but i could live without it i'm i mean i don't dislike it it's not a throwaway but it's not his best song by by any shot by any means yeah i agree it fits in the album but again this is a bob album to me and speaking of which so you're telling me that it all goes downhill on side two but side two not only does it have 59 times the pain but it also has i don't know what you're talking about come on I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. On the topic of chaff, how to skin a cat. Definitely chaff. Yep. We don't need that one. And then we uh, we get to What You Drinking, which is uh, another kind of classic Husker hardcore sound, a Bob song. And uh, then Plans I Make closes out side two. And there was one outtake. Erase Today, which we're going to be coming to, I don't know, maybe 10 episodes from now on Blasting Concept 2. Blasting Concept 2, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I look forward to hearing that one. I mean, I must admit, when I got Blasting Concept 2, I'm pretty sure I listened to it once. And I mean, well, this might be revealing a bit too much about the stuff that I like and the later era of, uh, of SST. I guess some of the more metal stuff, but I listened to that and was like, yeah, I got all that. And wow, great Husker Du song. I can do without the rest. So I rare, yeah. I rarely listen to that. And, uh, I well, maybe you're, it's time for a reappraisal. Hey, yeah, for sure. Hey, uh, SST didn't repeat their Zen arcade mistake. They sold 30,000 copies of this in the first four months, apparently. Yeah. They printed up enough for sure. And I mean, again, yeah. Carducci was on at this time. He requested it. He made it happen. He uh, he shipped everyone off to Minneapolis, got it recorded, and they had enough to tour on for sure. We talk about the artwork? Yeah, the artwork is really interesting. I mean, again, not what you would think about with a, a punk rock band. It's kind of a pastoral type of photo of a water body, like a lake or something like that, at, at either dusk or dawn. With a couple of dogs. It's a sunset, apparently. I read that. Yeah. Not a sunrise. With a couple of dogs. What do you think of the sun? I'm looking at it right now. It looks like 
a cigarette burn. Well, that's on the cover, right? Yeah. He kind of looks like that. And that might be how uh, the film was exposed. Because when you look at the back, it looks a little bit more like a sunset should look, right? I've never noticed it before. I'm just looking at the cover right now. Yeah. I don't know. And I mean, look at look at how the clouds look on the cover as well. Right. Seems like there might have been a bit of manipulation there in terms of the coloring, at least in the sky. Hey, Ryan, speaking of that Do You Remember podcast, uh, Ken Shipley from Numero Group is on there, and he talks about, like, trying to get the band on board for releasing, you know, the material that they released. And Bob says, if you can get the other other guys in, then, then I'll participate. So... He goes to Minneapolis and hooks up with Grant. This is this Ken Shipley guy, who was former A&R for Ryko Disc, by the way. So he probably had a relationship with, with Bob already. Yep. Bob talks a lot about Ryko Disc in his, in his book and sounds like he, he had a good experience with them. Yep. He meets up with Grant at a restaurant and it's apparently really hot. And Grant says, do you want to go for a drive and we'll go somewhere and cool off? So they go to a lake, strip down and go in. And when they're in the water, Grant says, do you know where we are? This is Cedar Lake, where the cover of New Day Rising was shot. Yep. That story is in the book that accompanies Savage Young Do that came out. Oh, yeah? I haven't read it yet. Yeah. <laughs> I've had that for like two months and I haven't read the book that comes with it yet. Get on it. When I got Savage Young Do, I listened to it kind of start to finish a few times and leafed through the book as I listened to it, and uh, that was one of the stories in there. It was one of the few stories in there, obviously because it was kind of a modern story, that isn't already kind of covered in one way or another in Bob Mould's book, the uh, the Andrew Earle's book, or even Michael Azarad's book. You know, Husker oh. Du is very well documented, and so it was cool to get some legit, recent Husker Du stuff on the Savage Young Du. What else? Runoff Grooves? Runoff Grooves. Do you have a Do you have a copy? Yeah. Okay. Who's reading it? I did them last week. You want to do this week? Yeah. Uh, okay. I got it sitting right here. Are you, well, you no, I'm good. Hand? I'm good. I know you don't like this record at all, so I better read it. All right. Here we go. Side one says, "Here in the midst of graveyards that push up light." And then side two says. I'll trade you two good Shirley's for 10,000 dead Midwestern Indians spot. Don't call me Shirley. Yeah, don't call me Shirley. What's your vector, Victor? Ballot result? Let's do it. Ballot result. All right, I'm afraid to, I'm still kind of afraid <laughs> to say anything because I feel like I'm going to get counseled otherwise. So I'm going to throw it over to you in the hopes that you throw it back to me. You can pick it. My picks, I apologize. I think if you pick 59 times the pain, I hope the people listening to this podcast, you know, tear you a new one. What? Yeah. You you have a malicious wish <laughs> to warn me on that? Listen, 59 times the pain is my favorite song on this record. It, it always has been, um, but I would pick Celebrated Summer. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, not my favorite Husker Du song. I mean, but I understand that a lot of people love that song, so I'm okay with that. 
Uh, oh, I'm glad you're okay with it. <laughs> hey, I get all the shit for my strong opinions on Black Flag. It's it's high time you got some got some abuse too. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna get any abuse for saying that New Day Rising is a good record and that Celebrated Summer is on the ballot result. I think uh, any abuse is coming right back at you, bud. Yeah, you're probably right. What's next week? So next week is a really interesting release. We've heard most of it before, but there's still some tidbits that we need to explore. And it's SST32, the cassette-only release by the Minuteman called My First Bells. Yeah, and we have a special guest, Ryan, Linda Kite. Right, and Linda Kite was, you know, D-Boone's girlfriend and was around with the Miniman and SST back in the day, so it'll be really cool to hear from her. Yeah, it sure will. Thanks for listening, everybody. 